So the theme for this year is the word in the Hellenistic world. We talked about Hellenism quite a few, quite a bit. That's the theme for the whole year. And we just finished up semester one, Wisdom in Israel. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a review of everything we've studied this semester. And for those of you that haven't done the test, I will cover probably almost everything that is in the test. So if you pay attention, you should be able to do the test. And if you don't pay attention, you should be able to YouTube. You can still do the test. That's true. It's true. Uh, Okay, so this is a review. Uh, So again, the theme for this year is the word in the Hellenistic world. Word in the Hellenistic world. And Hellenistic is another word for Greek, right? So Hellenism is the spread of Greek culture. We talk about culture, we talk about religion, art, literature, language. We all have our culture. We're talking about the Greek culture. And Hellenism was the spread of the Greek cultures throughout the Greek or Hellenistic Empire. Uh, And and Hellenism occurred, (coughs) and this occurred because Alexander the Great... (coughs) By the time of, there's a, they actually knew what he looked like. Alexander the Great, by the time of his death, in 323, had conquered most of the then known world, and one of his missions was to spread the Greek culture in all the lands that he conquered. And he was successful in doing that. And the Greek Empire existed up until 330 BC when it was conquered by Rome. But the culture itself was already ingrained in society and continued for quite a while after that. I mean, eventually the Roman culture took over, but the Greek culture persisted for for quite a while after that. You know, things like that don't change quick, quickly. Language and art, culture, uh, literature, especially the language. So over the centuries, many of the Jewish communities developed outside of Israel through uh, conquest by other nations or just, uh, uh, that's probably the main reason. And they were taken into captivity or they were defeated by other nations, spread out, and not all of them came back uh, when their exile was over. So over the centuries, Jewish populations grew up. outside of Jerusalem. These are called the diaspora Jews. We still use that term today. Right? If you're in diaspora, that you're a, a community living outside your country. These are the communities that were in existence around the time of Jesus. To give you an idea, they're all shown in red. Uh, the myth, probably the largest community outside Jerusalem at the time was the Jewish community in Alexandria. So they would have all come under the influence of the Greek culture, except probably Jerusalem maintained the Jewish culture. So the implication for this, like one of the major communities outside of Jerusalem that came under the Greek culture was the one in Alexandria. And for all of these, over the, over the generations, they would have again, enculturated and and picked up the Greek culture. Specifically, that means they would become Greek-speaking. They were all primarily Greek-speaking except those in Jerusalem. If you just think about 
your children or grandchildren and so on, by the time you, you're down three or four generations, you're speaking the, the native language, the vernacular of the native language. So they were all Greek speaking, which meant that those Jews living outside of Jerusalem would have needed a, a, a Bible in their native language or their vernacular, but they would have needed a Bible in Greek. Right? They had the Bible in Hebrew, which we were using in Jerusalem, but if you can't speak Hebrew, you need it in Greek. So there was a translation done of the Bible, the Jewish Bible, from Hebrew into Greek. And that is the translation we call the Septuagint. Right? We've talked about it several times. So that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture from Hebrew to Greek. And they think that was done in Alexandria, in Egypt, and somewhere between the 3rd to the 1st century BC, that translation was done. Right. So then there was a time when there were really two sets of Jewish scriptures. There would have been the one in Hebrew, which was used primarily in Jerusalem, and the one in Greek, the Septuagint, that would have been used by the Greek-speaking Jews, probably mostly outside of Jerusalem. Right. And that was the case at when, when Jesus came. Right. You had two scriptures that were being used, two Hebrew script, two Jewish scriptures. The Christians would have used the Septuagint because most of the Christian converts were Greek-speaking. There were some in Jerusalem, but most of them, if you think of Paul's journeys, right, most of the converts were uh, Greek-speaking. So the Christians early on were using the Septuagint or the Greek Bible. So early on in the church's history, the Christians had, and the Septuagint had those seven additional books that we talked about, that we've been studying, we'll study the rest of them next semester. So early on, the Christians had 46 books, and the Hebrew had 39, and early on in the first century, the Jewish people decided they would only use the Old Testament books that were written in Hebrew. So they made a definitive decision just to use so that's an error. Oh, there's yeah, there's yeah. an error. Should be 46. We figured you meant the 46. Yeah, sorry. yeah, there was, that's one error. Okay. Right, so early on, the Jewish the Jewish community decided they would only stick with the Hebrew translation. By that time, the Christians were already using the Greek. They were Greek speaking, so they continued using the Greek Old Testament, which explains why there's a difference between the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. Also, um, if you have some earlier if you have some earlier handouts, I actually had a mistake with these numbers, so this is the correct number. I think I had 36 and 29, but this is the correct number. So this this difference between the Christian Old Testament and the, and the Hebrew Old Testament continued up to the time of the Reformation and Martin Luther in the 1500s. Martin Luther made the decision to go back and use the Hebrew Old Testament. Some of the background. Okay. So these seven additional books are called Deuterocanonical by <coughs> Catholics and called Apocryphal by uh, non Catholics. So John had a non Catholic Bible there that had those books in it, and on the title it said, you know the Old Testament, including the apocryphal books, they were an attachment at the end of the end of the end of the Bible. So you, you'll see that commonly in, in uh, Protestant Bibles, they'll include the books as like an appendix. 
Right, and these are the seven books. Right, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, 1 and 2 Maccabees, parts of Esther and Daniel. And we study two of them this semester, and we'll study the rest of them next semester. Excuse me, Joe. He was saying earlier that um, the Bible that he has has all the seven books all scattered all over where it's not together. No, just uh, a different guy. Psalms uh, is. Mucho uh, diferente sitio. Yeah, because. Creo que Salmo lo tengo antes de Mateo. He's got um, Psalm before Matthew in different places where his other Bible pretty much go, coordinates with one that he has. He has a Bible where a lot of the, the scripture is scattered different places. Um, does that Bible have the deuterocanonical books in it? It's uh, Latin American. Latin American, yeah. Um, the uh, I, I, well, I know that if you if you look at a, a typical Protestant Bible that has them, they'll have them in an appendix, say at the end. If you look at a Catholic Bible, they're interspersed within the books. And okay. That's all I'm thinking. Any Catholic Bible, those books will be placed. They won't be together. They'll be within within the Bible, within uh, the Old um, Testament. Does that? Este, casi siempre tienen en lo, en lo último de, de la Biblia. Pero cuando es este, la Biblia católica, los tiene. Pero que están. Que, que, hay algunos que lo tienen. Que están en la Biblia, pero que están pegados. ¿Y esta Bible? ¿Es una Católica? Sí, esta como es. Yes. Um, yeah. So the books there are interspersed, right? They're not. The apocryphal yeah. books aren't all in one place in that book. En esta, están todos los siete libros juntos. Maybe you could show me. You can show me. That's that's the one distinction that I'm aware of. Maybe there's something else going on that I that I'm not aware of. Okay, so the books that we study this semester, Proverbs, we just we've studied wisdom books. The one exception was Habakkuk, who's one of the minor prophets. But he's kind of similar to Job. He's got a questioning attitude. And the others are well, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, also called uh, Kohelet, Sirach, Ecclesiasticus, and the Book of Wisdom. Um, so one of the uh, contributions of wisdom literature, a change from the previous Hebrew literature that we've been studying. Previously we studied the Pentateuch and the Prophets. And one of the change was the, in addition to the books we studied previously were wisdom or God is revealed to humanity. Now we see humanity has a role to play in discovering God, in discovering God and discovering wisdom by contemplating and reflecting on life and creation. So God is, re we start to see God is revealed in not only the physical creation, but also in human inner, inner, uh, inner reactions, inner relations. Uh, but the underlying, the underlying theology, even in wisdom, is very traditional, and that's what we've described as retribution theology, where 
uh, wisdom leads to blessings and folly leads to curses. And we, in the old, in the books we studied before, we would use different terms. You would say obedience leads to blessings and disobedience leads to curses. Same idea though. So we've had, uh, so we've had some changes on the attitude that these books have taken toward this traditional wisdom. The first book we studied, Proverbs, they accepted this position wholeheartedly. Um, when we studied Job, it was questioned. Job was saying, doesn't seem to hold because I'm a good man. Right? I'm a righteous man and I'm being cursed. Something's not right here. Ecclesiastes um, kind of rejected it. They said there's no connection between wisdom and blessing and folly and curses because it's all it's all uh, what is it? It's all vanity, vanity. right? It's all vanity. Vanity. In the end, it's all, no, it doesn't matter. And in the end, everybody dies. Um, and then, Sirach, we're back to accepting it where blessings leads or obedience and wisdom leads to blessings and Disobedience follow these curses, kind of ignoring the questions raised by Job and Ecclesiastes. And then the last book we studied was Wisdom, which also accepted traditional understanding, but was able to kind of solve it by bringing in the concept of the afterlife. So previously, you, did, you had to get the blessings in this life, and that wasn't happening. With Wisdom, we had the afterlife, where God can kind of sort everything out right, and get the blessings if you didn't get them in this life. Or Solomon. Solomon was the wise, traditionally, he was the wisest man of all. Um, so I'm going to take a look at each one of the books briefly that we studied. Started with Proverbs. And. We find in Proverbs probably the most frequent topic of all wisdom literature, and that's practical advice on how to live a good life. So an example that I gave you before is 22 verse 1. A good name is more desirable than great riches and high esteem than gold and silver. So yes, generally good advice. And the other uh, typical theme of wisdom literature is the whole idea of what is the meaning of life, which is the tougher, tougher subject. And we have a name for that, theodicy, which kind of boils down to, you know, why, why do why do the innocent suffer? Which is a question on the nature of God. In um, Proverbs, we have wisdom personified as a woman, first lady wisdom who offers a banquet, banquet of the blessings of life, and now we have. Her opposite, Dame Folly, who also offers a banquet, but her banquet is a banquet of ill-gotten goods. And the result of that is death. (coughs) And and from from a Christian perspective, we bring this idea of Lady Wisdom into the New Testament with our understanding of Mary. One of her titles is Mary, the Seat of Wisdom. 
right? We understand here as, as you can like offering us the true wisdom, which is Jesus. Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is uh, one of the twelve minor prophets, and he is a uh, a forerunner to Job, and he complains to God about injustice, and we hear God answering him. So he has it's a short book, like four chapters, and he has two complaints. He complains he complains to God that he sees injustice and says, God, you're doing nothing about it. God answers him. Punishment is coming. Babylonians are coming to take care of the, your evil lead, your evil leaders. So justice is on the way. And then we hear a second complaint. Habakkuk, he says, "Oh, the faithless are devouring the just." And God, you're silent. God answers him. The just shall live. Right. Again, patience. Be patient. And the book ends with Habakkuk. Praying, saying a prayer of trust and joyful patience to God. So he accepts God's answer and he's waiting for God to take action. Waiting patiently. And then we have our friend Job. A truly innocent man who is suffering. And he's the first one to seriously and persistently question the traditional theology of retribution. And the bulk of Job is a poetic dialogue between Job and his, I guess, three or four so-called friends. Uh, and it ends with uh, with God having the last word, which seems appropriate. God kind of ends the conversation. I was like that because it, it, it kind of, to me, uh, says God's a good listener. Right? God listens to everybody, but then he says, okay, I, now you're all done now? Okay, I have something to say. Uh, and it's set. Uh, this the all these dialects are set in the context of an ancient folk tale. Right, this is the it begins and the ends. You could take all this out and read just the beginning and end together, which we did. And it's an ancient folk tale where um, God sets up a test for Job, which Job passes, and in the end, all the blessings are restored restored to Job. Moving on to Koheleth or Ecclesiastes, there's a point in time for everything. In Koheleth, the questioning, uh, the questioning of traditional wisdom, this theology of retribution, really goes up a notch. Right? For Koheleth, there's a appointed time for everything, but nothing is permanent. Everything is changing and fleeting. Or as he so famously says, "Vanity, vanity," says Koheleth. Vanity of vanity. All things are vanity. Everything, everything is vanity. Everything is like vapor, breath, and something, something insubstantial and ephemeral, a vain, futile thing, as uh, from the commentary by Murphy. And when Koholas says everything is vanity, he means everything. So wisdom, folly, good, evil, blessings and curses from his perspective, are all folly because, in the end, we all share the same fate, and that's death. And from his perspective, if you're dead, you're dead. That's it. There's no afterlife. No meaningful afterlife. Afterlife, but no meaningful afterlife. 
Uh, he talks. They talk about <coughs> Sheol, she- 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 which is not. You know, he's, he said the well, Job says the problem with Sheol is, you know, I can't praise you in Sheol. Right? Okay. So what good am I to you there? Okay. Uh, the last two books we studied, Sirach and Wisdom, were, prob- were probably the last written and start to show more strongly the Hellenistic influences <coughs> and also Israel's reaction to these influences. And... The, the strong reaction wasn't just like written reaction because during the time there was also a Jewish revolt under the Maccabees and they actually were able to gain independence from Greece for uh, you know, a good hundred years and we'll study one or two Maccabees next semester so one of the purposes of Sirach, the first one uh, is to counter these Hellenistic cultural influences. Uh, So for Sirach, according to the Catholic Study Bible, real wisdom was to be found in the traditions of Israel and not in the godless Greek philosophy. So Yahweh, he's just making it clear, Yahweh is the source of all wisdom. Wisdom resides in the law and the temple in Jerusalem. And then he gives examples of how wisdom helped them in the past by giving examples of the stories of the ancient heroes to show how wisdom was with the Jewish people. In the last book we studied, uh, uh, Wisdom. Uh, Wisdom has the same purpose as the book of Sirach. It's, It's written to counter the Hellenistic influences, and it does it by demonstrating the superiority of Jewish wisdom over Greek wisdom, but it does it differently than Sirach. So instead of demonstrating it, by relying on Jewish tradition and Jewish history, according to the Catholic Study Bible, the writer of wisdom uses the ideas, the language, and the literary style of the Greek culture to demonstrate the excellence of the Jewish faith. And we we didn't get to that question, but uh, I think that was question six, where the idea is you, if you're within a culture, you can either uh, isolate yourself from it and resist it, or you can enculturate, uh, in, in take what's good in it, right, and be part of it. The trick is to do it without without compromising your core beliefs. That's always the challenge. So one of the one of the probably the main idea that they took in and assimilated from the Greek culture was this idea of immortality, life after death. They didn't have a clear concept of that. The Greek culture did, and it's one idea that they incorporated into the literature, which we saw pretty strongly in the Book of Wisdom. And with this idea, um, with immortality, (coughs) and life after death, has two significant implications. First is that now with the meaningful life after death, humanity's relationship with God can continue. It's not done. We still praise God. We still have a relationship with God. No more shell, at least at least for the just. They started to get that clear. What happens to the unjust? It kind of reads like there's nothing for them. Right? Uh, but you can see there's, a, there's an involvement in the understanding of uh, what happens after death. And the other is, with this book, or with the idea of immortality, we can 
we can also start to get a comprehension of some meaning, some meaning in suffering. Right? Really counter, countering the vanity of vanity, vanities. Uh, looking at it. So now there's meaning in suffering. Uh, and uh, and of course we had some examples of different forms of suffering, but I would say in general you can you can see a suffering maybe as a test or a purification that those who have gone through it have passed and are now with God and receiving the blessings. And yet again, just to jump to the jump to the end, uh, we know we know that the fullest meaning of suffering and true wisdom is revealed with the coming of Jesus. Because Jesus' obedient suffering on the cross saved the world and through our suffering joined to his we can become partners in his saving work. And with that we've come to the end of semester one, year four. Any questions? So, so they thought it was just for the just here, but then it changes and it becomes for all. Like in the, in yeah. the New Testament, and, and well, well, the con- <laughs> in the New Testament, you start to get a clear understanding of punishment. They don't ap- mention after. hell in the old. Right, you don't have a concept of hell in the Old or Testament purgatory, no. or purgatory. Okay. Okay. Any questions? All right. Our Father, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Our Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you.